Hello, and welcome to the Idea City podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Gilbert, and today with me is Hisu Cho, a founder and managing director of Savvy Mind. Hisu is an operational leader who previously worked in operations and strategy at large Canadian companies. As the co-founder of Savvy Mind, Hisu is responsible for the company's growth and operations strategy, ensuring that Savvy Mind provides industry-leading processes and management techniques that enable best-in-class patient care. Hisu, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So for those who don't know, can you explain what Savvy Mind is? Savvy Mind uh, is an organization looking to open up access to psychedelic-assisted therapies, with the initial clinical focus being uh, around the use of ketamine within a therapeutic model. And how did you start doing something like that? That seemed a little out there. Yeah, so the, the journey began in 2019 after a tragic loss of a friend and mentor. It was just one of those moments that, you know, we woke up the next day and nothing was the same. Um, the impact of mental health um, was very apparent. Um, and, you know, a group of us got together and kind of made a promise in terms of, you know, how do we ensure that, you know, these types of incidents are are minimized and, and kind of don't happen again. And so we, we made a collective agreement that we want to contribute to the mental health space. Um, throughout that process, you know, we came across psychedelic assisted therapies. Um, and a couple of years later, Savvy came to life. Now, uh, how, you kind of gloss over that, but I want to know, how did you come across uh, psychedelic therapies as a response and ketamine in particular? For sure. Uh, it was through my own healing journey that I came across psychedelic assisted therapies. Um, after the loss of my friend, uh, we went uh, and explored the available mental health solutions within the community, did the traditional talk therapy route. Um, and while it was impactful, I was still searching for more. Uh, I was lucky to find uh, a psilocybin assisted therapies practitioner within the community. And and for me, it, it was quite transformative. Um, it was it was life changing to say the least, um, and after finding that, um, we knew that we wanted to contribute to the space, and so we kind of went into research mode, got integrated into the community, and and just figured out a way uh, to contribute to the space in some shape or form. And um, coming from hospitality, we realized that um, adding an experience factor to a clinical model is kind of where we found our position. So what, what does a psychedelic approach to uh, a therapeutic intervention do that isn't already being done? Yeah, I think, you know, first and foremost, our approach is a very multidisciplinary approach, meaning that there's quite a few practitioners that participate in the actual program itself. Um, obviously, everything that we do is filtered through a legal medical lens, so safety and efficacy is, is top priority. Um, but the experience factor is something that we've brought into the equation that um, we believe has significant therapeutic event, uh, um, therapeutic benefit. Um, and so when we look at that, we, we're trying to add additional layers to the existing medical model that provide maybe a little more comfort, uh, a little bit more patient-centered care, and a little bit more emphasis on the human and less about the medication or um, sometimes the, the sterile environment of medical clinics. Um, we go the extra mile to ensure that uh, the... Other senses are also engaged in a manner that is uh, hopefully beneficial in, in the patient's healing journey. 
So for those who aren't aware, um, maybe can you talk a bit more about ketamine in particular? What is it? What does it do? Yeah, so, so ketamine is a general anesthetic that has been used in a medical setting since the 60s and 70s. Uh, it is one of the most common anesthetics used in the OR. Um, and the way we use ketamine is, is technically you know, off-label. Um, but there has been a growing body of evidence um, for the last... 10 to 15 years about the potential benefits of ketamine uh, to treat mental health conditions. And so, you know, we've taken a lot of inspiration from the existing literature out there and integrated that into a holistic care model that, you know, hopefully provides a little more than just the focus on the medicine. There is, you know, significant psychotherapy uh, integrated into the program as well. Um, yeah. So um, can you describe to us what does ketamine do to a person when you when you've taken it for the first time what is that experience like what can people expect yeah so there's definitely some some feelings of disassociation i think you know the experiences are quite subjective each person is going to have a a kind of a unique experience if nothing else the, the delivery method that we've chosen is intramuscular because we believe that there is you know benefit in allowing individuals to have a psychedelic experience. Um, and so we, we, we like to get a client to a point when they are, you know, experiencing an altered state of consciousness. And in that moment, we find that individuals are, you know, having some of those breakthroughs and transformative experiences where they're um, kind of taken out of their current situation and able to frame things in a new way and new manner. You know, a, a lot of the literature suggests that the neuroplasticity uh, kind of occurs in these states as well as 48 hours after that. So we're doing our best to kind of, you know, ensure some of those potential situations are happening in our facility. Um, and, and, you know, looking to ensure that the individuals uh, understand the implications of what that can bring. Uh, and so there's quite a bit of preparation involved prior to, uh, but we are very proponent, you know, psychedelic experiences. Now, I, I think uh, the clinical setting and the preparation that you talk about mm -hmm. is an important factor around this, because for, for my own part, it seems to me that ketamine was always sort of a a drug that you looked at sideways, right? So it seems to me there's a bit of a, a stigma associated with it. Uh, so can you first talk about dealing with that stigma and then talk about what the clinical setting allows you to do? I think, you know, when we were first developing the program, um, we also felt the stigma. We, you know, from a first glance, we all heard the stories of ketamine being a horse tranquilizer, the term K-hole. Um, and for us, it was all about finding credible individuals who were qualified and understood the medicine through a medical lens so they could educate us uh, and then in turn educate the potential clientele and patient list. So um, we've gone the extra step and brought in anesthesia, um, anesthesiologists to be able to uh, ensure that we have the best practices available in terms of delivering the, me uh, the medicine itself but also a significant amount of understanding behind where the medicine comes from, uh, the mechanisms of action, and just ensuring that, you know, we can provide as much material as someone needs to understand the safety profile, uh, the potential, uh, you know, risks with taking ketamine, uh, and to ensure that, you know, we're doing everything that we can to have uh, an upfront educated conversation about the medicine within a the therapeutic model. And hopefully through those 
conversations uh, and individual supporting savvy, uh, clients feel a little more safe and, and maybe gain a little bit of a, a better understanding of what the actual medicine is and, and how it can potentially benefit individuals. Um, in terms of the, the therapeutic setting, <clears throat> I think, you know, if we look outside of ketamine itself, we've gone the extra mile in terms of ensuring that the space, um, how we interact with guests, um, every part of the experience, uh, we've paid a lot of attention to the details that kind of go into curating that. From an experience standpoint, we look at optimizing the best possible outcomes from everything um, including the lighting, the temperature of the room, the style of the room, um, where the client will sit, uh, whether that is one of, in one of our treatment chairs or the couch. Um, we have you know, special curated music, uh, and we actually allow the client to choose how the music is played, either through headphones or speakers. So a lot of emphasis goes into really dialing in the experience component. Um, and when you combine that with the medicine, you know, we're seeing, uh, one, I think the client's ability to kind of open up to the experience a little more because they're feeling a little more grounded, feeling a little more comfortable. Uh, but two, I think, you know, once that comfortableness level of comfort is, is there, I think individuals are, are maybe a little more inclined to be a bit more vulnerable, uh, in, in certain situations as well. Um, and obviously a huge component of that is, is the, the team that we've also, you know, employed at Sabi, um, just making sure that they're prepared, uh, to, um, kind of curate and also provide the, the safe environment that the space kind of already, uh, uh elicits. Um, and so it, it's this really holistic wraparound care model where we're thinking about all the implications, all the different touch points, um, when the client does come in. So my understanding is you guys started in October 2020. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. Uh, and you first took a couple of months to kind of figure out the lay of the land, mm -hmm. settle where are you going. And then if I'm not mistaken, you know, that sort of mid-pandemic is kind of when you started seeing clients, right? Uh, we, we opened our doors actually in March. And so it, it was about an 18-month journey to our first location opening. Um, you, you're correct. The first six to eight months were just R&D just learning, diving into the literature, attending conferences, uh, networking in the space, just so we could get a, a, a sense of, you know, where the space was at, what was happening, um, you know, what were the regulations behind, you know, exploring opportunities, um, and then just making sure that, you know, we could actually add value and that we could, you know, also participate in the space that was meaningful and, and not just uh, being opportunistic, like, you know. Um, and, you know, through that six to eight month journey, we explored a couple different iterations of what Sabi could be. Um, but we landed on the clinic model for a couple of reasons. I think uh, if you look at our operational team and leadership team, a lot of the individuals have experience in hospitality. And that hospitality piece, I think, is really vital if we look at, you know, how to ensure that um, this, you know, medical treatment uh, has the best chance of providing a positive impact on individuals. And it's that experience component. So really curating the experience alongside robust safety and efficacy uh, is going to create the best possible outcomes for individuals. And so that's where, you know, the hospitality medical uh, intersection led to a, a clinic. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned impacts and outcomes. I'm curious, what sort of impacts and outcomes are you hoping to see? What are you hoping to bring to the community with this? Uh, I think, if nothing else, increased empathy, increased compassion, providing opportunities um, for healing and minimizing harm. That Those are, you know, kind of the, the values that we hold near and dear when we're you know, looking at decision making in the organization. We will always be a community driven organization. All the decisions and stakeholders and just the way we interact is, is based off being of service to the community. And we, we'd love to make an impact in any shape or form, in any size, whether that is big scale, the city of Calgary on a national stage, or just a one-on-one interaction. And, and when we talk about impact, I think it's more about positive impact and, and less about just getting the name out there or, or you know, uh, kind of flooding the, um, the ecosystem with your presence. It's more about, you know, how do we intentionally um, ensure that the interactions that we're having, whether that is in clinic or on this podcast with you, has some sort of positive impact to, in an individual's life. So can you talk a bit about... Uh... The, the wide variety of things that this treatment is good for because it's not just physical it's also mental right yeah um so we, we have two channels uh, mental health and chronic pain uh, we often find that individuals with one have uh, comorbidities in the other um, but in the mental health stream uh, as it stands uh, treatment resistant depression major depressive disorder uh, ptsd uh, these are the types of indications that we're looking to uh, assist with in that space when it comes to the chronic pain side of things, um, CRPS and cluster headaches are the two main um, indications that we're looking to help out with. Um, but within that, there's a bit of flexibility that we explore with the individual and our clinicians to ensure that one, this program has a significant chance of adding value. Um, but two, you know, have they tried everything else prior to this as well? Um, I think a huge piece of what we look to do right away is manage expectations. We are not <laughs> promising that this is going to work for everybody. I think there is a <clears throat> uh, uh, there can be at times uh, uh, an emphasis on the potential positive benefits that maybe aren't as realistic as they need to be. This is not a panacea. It takes a significant amount of work. Um, and even in the literature, it suggests that, yes, there's a significant chance of it increasing um, <clears throat> the healing opportunities, but we just need to be pragmatic about it and, and ensure that we're managing expectations from the beginning and have a, uh, having an honest conversation about it. So let's talk about the clients that you guys have seen so far. Who is your typical client? Yeah, in, in terms of the demographics, we've seen a, a wide range of age, gender, um, you know, where, where they come from. I think predominantly we've seen mental health clients come through, individuals looking for, you know, support with their mental health, um, a, a couple of chronic pain uh, individuals as well. Um, <clears throat> I think if nothing else, there is a bit of a, uh, I don't want to say desperation, but they've tried everything else out there. Um, and so when they come to us, they're, they're looking for something maybe a little innovative, something maybe a little different than what they're used to seeing. Um, and so it, it definitely the clients that we're seeing are, are interested in this potential medicine, which I think helps. You know, there needs to be a genuine level of interest and 
um, and, and what we do because it's not the typical you know medical treatment uh, the program is is very unique in terms of how you interact with the not only the space but the clinicians themselves um, so yeah yeah it's been quite diverse so you say it, it's not what people would imagine at first blush when they think of a clinical therapeutic intervention right mm-hmm what sort of reactions do you get from people who don't know what you do when you explain what you do? Yeah, I, I, I mean, people automatically presume that we work with mushrooms. I think mushrooms are having kind of a moment in, in, in the media and in the space right now. So I think when you say psychedelics, people are quick to be like, oh, magic mushrooms. Um, that's not what we do. We don't currently work with mushrooms. Uh, we are looking at securing legal safe supply um, through the Health Canada channels. Um, in very specific scenarios, you can look at you know exemptions for individual patients, but that is not what we do currently. Um, and I think people are just uh, assuming that we write scripts for medicine and that people just take home and and you know do on their on their own, which is you know. I'm not here to knock on the existing psychiatric model whatsoever. It's provided significant benefit for a lot of people. You know, SSRIs do work in certain scenarios. I think what we're trying to do is provide maybe a different option um, for individuals who are finding that those don't currently work for them. And so when we talk to them about the amount of hours and visits it takes within the model and the program, they're like, oh, this is more of a, a commitment and I, I need to, you know, allow myself to commit to the work and be intentional about how I interact with the program itself. So uh, that brings me to the next question of set and setting. For those who don't know, what is set and setting and why is that important? Yeah, so set and setting refers to two things. The first part being set, which is mindset, uh, and setting being the environment. And so when you look at psychedelic experiences, you want to ensure those two principles are thought out. And that you're mindful of those and so when we look at set and setting i think the biggest thing that people should kind of acknowledge prior to even addressing those two things is intentionality and so you know the mindset being hey what are my intentions for this experience what am i looking to gain Um, am i in a safe space Uh, which leads, leads to the setting component and that's just making sure that you feel safe and that can be a variety of things, whether that's the environment or the location or even the individuals that you're around, just ensuring that you feel supported and safe um, in the case that, you know, a, a challenging experience comes up with the, the, the medicine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Hisu, why do you think what you do is important? Uh, I've seen the significant benefits in my own life. Uh, and not that I'm trying to push my values on other people. Uh, I, I think it's made me a more empathetic and compassionate individual. Uh, my relationships have gotten significantly better. I have uh, much more self-love. Uh, and I think if we can somehow you know, promote that in others, a, a little bit more you know, kindness, a little bit more empathy, a little bit more self-love, a little bit more happiness. Um, I, I think that's important to have in this world. Uh, I think, you know, outside of my own lived experiences, we've all seen the implications of mental health challenges from COVID-19 and just in general from the state of things. Uh, and I think if we can provide 
maybe a, a, a new solution or a new option uh, for individuals to explore and people see benefit from that, I, you know, it's, it's hard not to at least try. Uh, and I'm not saying that Sabi is going to be it for everybody. It's just nice to have options for people to explore because as we know, mental health care and mental health treatment is not one size fits all. We need to have more solutions, more resources, more opportunities for people to explore what their individual healing journey is like. Um, and, and to be kind of open and transparent about it. Now you've been doing this for a, w a little while now. Uh, What's your impression of the state of mental health in our community currently? I've, we've seen a significant shift in terms of the acknowledgement piece, which is really great to see. I think when we look at, you know, healing, acknowledgement is usually the first place to start. And it, we're seeing that kind of being addressed unilaterally, not only from a policy government standpoint, a media standpoint, um, but just from a community standpoint, you know, the conversations I'm having now with my groups of friends and, and stakeholders around me is very different than they were five years ago. I think <clears throat> people are <clears throat> allowing themselves to be a little more vulnerable with uh, accepting that, you know, maybe they are having challenging moments uh, and they're willing to share those moments. And so I think that is a significant <clears throat> kind of changing of the tide that we've seen uh, in recent years. Um, but that's just at the start. You know, once you've acknowledged it, where do you go now? Right. Um, I, I think we need to see uh, maybe a, a little more emphasis from policymakers to ensure that we're supporting individuals who don't have access to some of these types of treatments. Uh, and we need to do be, be doing a better job just internally uh, from a community standpoint to ensure that, you know, <clears throat> are we, uh, you know, doing things in a way that um, doesn't add more barriers in a sense uh, and that we're um, being thoughtful and mindful of maybe the implications of perpetuating certain solutions that aren't working. Um, and so, uh, state of affairs, I think the acknowledgement piece is increasing. I think the actionable items need to start kind of, um, coming into play now. And what that looks like is, you know, who knows, I think in, in terms of savvy standpoint on that, we're, we're co contributing the best way we know how, uh, and I hope others do the same. And I hope through that process that we come out with a, a little bit more of a robust ecosystem for people to explore certain options to, to get help. Now, uh, one thing I found interesting was you mentioned barriers a little while back. What are some of the biggest barriers to the mental health conversation and, and the actionables that you're talking about? Yeah, the, the most obvious one is price, right? When we look at uh, mental health treatments, a lot of them are not covered <clears throat> by the public health system. You know, we're seeing increased coverage from private insurance policies, which is fantastic. And, and, and we love to see that. Um, but I think, you know, obviously outside of the price implication, there are other significant kind of barriers that a lot of individuals don't access. You know, racialized, marginalized communities sometimes have a distrust for the existing infrastructures, including healthcare, uh, And that comes down to a, a wide conversation that, you know, I'm not maybe the best person to explore. But if nothing else, I think it, even in that sense, representation is huge. Um, in the psychedelic space, you're not seeing a lot of it currently. Um, <clears throat> you know, with 
it being such a new novel space, you know, things do take time, but I think the action needs to happen early. The acknowledgement piece needs to happen early. Um, not to say that representation is going to fix the distrust problem, but it is going to help in a certain extent. Um, you know, outside of that, I think sometimes there is a stickiness or an unwillingness to explore new options because people get comfortable with the status quo and, and what is currently available. Um, but we have to acknowledge that the status quo isn't working in certain points. So why are we not trying to explore new options or new avenues for individuals to, to find, you know, more benefit? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. Why aren't we doing that? Because <laughs> uh, um, change is tough. It, it's hard. I think, you know, especially for an individual who's made a career or life of doing a thing a certain way, change at a late stage in life is difficult. One, it takes acknowledgement that maybe what you were doing wasn't always in best practice or maybe always wasn't the best choice and to acknowledge that is difficult and I, and I understand that I think sometimes uh, individuals are, are, are quick to judge them and and not hold enough compassion but we need to be patient with all people at all times to ensure that you know we're having a, a an open dialogue about some of these shifts and changes because there's lots to learn from what has come before Right. And we need to ensure that we're honoring that to a certain extent uh, and using that as a baseline kind of foundation to explore new avenues. I think when people talk innovation, they're so quick to just focus on that piece without kind of honing in on what has come before and taking some of the, the positive benefits of that and implementing it into the, the, the new strategy. Now, uh, I think since we're on the subject of talking about new stuff, mm -hmm. you mentioned a little earlier on magic mushrooms and maybe looking into that as well. Mm -hmm. uh, for the lay person out there, what would be the difference between all these different types of, of medications? Yeah, I think when we look at the list of psychedelics um, that are eventually going to be available uh, through a medical lens, uh, we, our approach and belief is that different tools for different individuals and situations, and they all kind of have their own different uh, applications for an example in the uh, mdma situation it's it's very focused on ptsd and, and in helping and supporting individuals with ptsd and the <clears throat> clinical trials and the publications currently around um, that study is showing supreme net positive benefit uh, and so when you do see mdma come online it will most likely be just for that indication um, psilocybin you're seeing it being approved for um, palliative care, so end-of-life uh, anxiety. Um, I think you'll start to see that scope kind of widen um, to depression, tumor-resistant depression, uh, other forms of mental health conditions. Um, the, the two things about psilocybin and MDMA, though, the experiences are quite long, you know, anywhere from four to eight hours, depending the dose and, and which substance. From a therapeutic standpoint within the existing model, scaling that is quite difficult because you're now paying for a clinician's time, whether that be an RN or a therapist, for four to eight hours. We already see a price issue with some of these treatments. How do we scale that in a <clears throat> manageable manner for individuals to actually access them? I think this is where policy comes into play. I think we need more increased coverage uh, through the public system. Um, I think you know private payers need to also kind of step up and, and look at you know 
how can they um, <clears throat> support individuals looking for this as well. Um, to circle back to your question, it, 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 it's so dependent on the individual's needs uh, uh, and their ability to kind of explore the medicine. Um, but I think <clears throat> as long as, you know, everything that individuals are doing is around the evidence uh, and that the intentions are true, I think um, we're going to see a lot of these um, substances come online sooner than later. So uh, the name of your company has actually got an interesting origin. Can you tell the people at home? Um, it draws inspiration from the Japanese aesthetic and philosophy, wabi-sabi. Uh, and some of the core principles of that philosophy is, you know, finding beauty and imperfection. But the one I think that resonated the most uh, specifically for Sabi um, was a, an action that was associated with it. And that is the artful mending of damage. And so when you look at the, the Japanese art form of Kitsugi, um, when they take a ceramic that is broken or damaged, instead of discarding it and making a new one, they take the time to fill the cracks with golden lacquer, uh, essentially showcasing the damage on, on the item. Uh, and through that process, finding the inherent beauty in that, uh, one, the, the, the damage that the item has seen and the effort that it took to kind of mend it. Uh, and so when we look at what we do in, in the mental health space, I think that is kind of a guiding philosophy and principle. So uh, in terms of long-term implications of working in this area, what do you think <clears throat> the future holds? I hope prophylactic care. I hope that, uh, yes, we are looking to support individuals who are suffering um, significantly right now, who need help, who need additional solutions. But I think if we're forward looking, I hope that we start viewing and interacting with our mental health the way we do our physical health. You know, if you go to the gym, you get enough sleep and you eat right, these are all um, preventative measures you're taking to ensure that your physical health is in a good place. I hope, you know, we start using some of these uh, services and resources and ways of thinking to also ensure that our mental health is in a good place. You know, as it currently stands, we look to get help when things are extremely bad. And maybe there is a, a different approach where we can be a little bit more preventative. So the future that I hope that Sabi can contribute to is that um, we open up access um, unilaterally so people can you know explore self-development and self-growth um, through services like you know ketamine assisted psychotherapy um, and, and other versions of that as well so I think you guys are being pretty proactive about that can you uh, for example tell people about the hospitality healing project yeah, the hospitality community is something near and dear to uh, the founders and, you know, leadership team and, and other members of our organization. It's where a lot of us kind of grew up. Um, it, it taught us a lot about not only business, but life. And um, <clears throat> it, it's a community that has <clears throat> nonstop pressures to ensure that others are happy and are being uh, catered to um, without any reciprocation, you know, uh, in a sense, other than the transactional component. And I think when we look at maybe the long-term health implications of always being around substances, always being of service, um, working insane hours uh, in a very dynamic, fast environment, <clears throat> it's stressful. 
Uh, and there's not enough discussion in the space around what are we doing to ensure that the, that the mental health of our colleagues and employees and team members are in a good place. Um, and so it's time to make that shift. Um, so we're launching the hospitality healing project in the coming weeks now. Um, and it's, the, the entire program is curated around supporting that community um, from a few different standpoints. I think education and discussion is a huge piece that we need to start with. And so <clears throat> for us, we're engaging organizational leaders, but also just individuals working in the space um, to just talk about mental health first and foremost. And then we have a, a wide list of services that are catered to them in a sense. So um, we have a peer support piece that's called Sunday Sessions, um, where it's a, a more of an open house um, format where individuals come down and they can just engage with their colleagues and peers around um, items that might be coming up for them in the workspace. Um, we're lacing in a bit of a psychoeducational component led by savvy mental health practitioners where um, we'll discuss a, a wide variety of topics, you know, anything from harm reduction to emotional regulation to conflict resolution, just so that, you know, we're putting it out there that we need to start looking at these things and talking about these things, you know, outside of some of the <clears throat> Um, educational pieces, we are providing preferred rates for services. So one-on-one -on -one counseling, um, we're, we're, you know, look at, looking at scaled pricing uh, that's significantly, you know, more affordable than the industry average. Um, we're just looking to contribute uh, any way we can. And so um, I hope that it's well received. <laughs> I know that when I was in hospitality, uh, I would have I hope that I would have been receptive to it as well. And I guess that's another piece of it. I think, you know, in theory, you know, when our intentions are in a good place, but how it unfolds, we'll see. Yeah. So, Hisu, I've had you for a little over a half hour already. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that, by the way. Uh, what is the one big takeaway you hope that listeners have from this conversation? Explore your options, you know. Um, be curious a little bit. Uh, I, I hope, you know, <clears throat> if, if you're not having your, your needs met in a sense of uh, anything to do with your, your mental health or, or chronic pain, you know, explore what, uh, what, what else is out there. Um, I think, you know, if nothing else, I hope this conversation uh, allows people to be uh, maybe a little more open-minded to the potentials of psychedelic assisted therapies um and it's exciting that calgary is a little bit of a hub for it um so stay tuned because there's a lot of uh, movement happening uh, right here in our backyard uh yeah and if people want to be a part of that movement where can they find you <laughs> so the best place to start would be savvymind.com um, we offer a free brief consultation that kind of gives a, a program summary and an overview of what we're doing. Uh, we'll also be looking to host open houses pretty consistently in the coming months. Um, we'll also be launching a, an educational series um, in June. Um, so there'll be lots of opportunity to interact with the organization. Um, but there's tons. The space is massive. Get in where you can. Um, be critical of the information that you're seeing. Um, and I think it's important to be, you know, uh, unbiased as much as you can. Um, but yeah, SavvyMind.com or on Instagram, SavvyMind. All right. Awesome. Hisu Cho, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much.
before we sign off, we'd like to thank you, the listener, for joining us today. We'd also like to acknowledge that Idea City was made on Treaty 7 land and was made possible by Hunter Hub for Social Innovation. This podcast was produced by Work Nicer, Andrew Gilbert, Kurt Archer, Simone Pabretza, and the TEDxYYC graphics team. Music for this podcast is by Sargent and Comrade.